3: The will to
4: act is itself a renewable resource. Hello, my name is Mark, and I'm the co founder and publisher of the Climactic Collective, the podcast network that is by and for the Australian climate community, at least for now. Today, I've got something for you that's very special, that's from outside the network, and I can't wait to talk to you about it in just a second. But before I get to that, I just wanna apologize for the echo in my recording as I'm sitting in front of my microphone in an empty room in a largely empty apartment. And that's because my wife and I are moving home to New Zealand in three weeks. This is the first time I've talked about the move on Climactic and that's not because I've been avoiding it because it's a bad thing, but simply because life has been busy and I haven't been sure where to fit it in and how big of a deal to make of it but it's probably not worth that much of a big deal being made. Uh, Simply speaking, despite my American-ish accent, I'm a Kiwi, and uh, my wife and I have been abroad uh, for seven years. So we've simply made the decision to return home. And this doesn't mean that Climactic is going away or there's any big changes happening. It'll simply mean that Climactic becomes a trans-Tasman network. As I'll be doing interviews and shows from New Zealand... And this would make a great opportunity to expand the network out to include creators from the Pacific Island nations as well. So if you know of any great podcasters from Fiji, Tonga, Samoa, Kiribati, please get in touch with us. Raising others' voices and helping other people make stories in the climate space and cover what's happening in their local communities. That's what Climactic has been about from the start. And Australia and Melbourne particularly has been a great incubator for that and a great nest to get us started. But now with Climactic in its fourth year, it's time for us to expand. And I'm happy to say we've got the resources and structure now to support creators from our neighbors to the north. And speaking of initiatives, what you're about to hear is a very, very special episode from a new series from the Sustainable Hour. The Sustainable Hour in many ways are a sister group to us, and if life had been a little bit differently, Climactic could have very easily not existed at all, and instead, I could have found what I was looking for, podcasts that engaged with the climate crisis talking to relatable everyday people, I could have found that in the Sustainable Hour, but I didn't know they existed until after I'd started Climactic. It's a funny old world that way. So what you're about to hear from them is the first in a new series called The Climate Revolution. And to quote the creator, Mick Eight, we need nothing less than a climate revolution, and that revolution begins in your head. Enter our new podcast series, The Climate Revolution. Now, it's very appropriate for me here to quote Mick, as this first episode is largely a series of excerpts from other great podcasts or speeches, appearances, but it sets the scene remarkably for what is going to be a really incredible series, and I can't wait for more of it to come out. So just to quote Mick again here, if you think an hour-long podcast is too long for you, we recommend you think of it differently. The overall idea with us doing these long podcasts, and they've done 375 of them by now, they are ahead of us, is that our listeners are on transport, sitting in a car or a train, and they press the pause button in the podcast player when they reach their destination. And then they can just pick it up later the next time it suits them. In other words, you cut it up into bits that suit you. You, not we, the podcast creators, decide where to make the breaks yourself. And I think that's a very small but important note when looking at a longer episode like this one, is that no one is gonna make you listen to the hour in one sitting. You set the time and pace, just like you do when you read a book. And what a book this is. Thanks again to Mick and the whole Sustainable Hour team. Thank you for having me on recently to talk about the Podcasters Declare campaign. More info at podcastersdeclare.com. And now I'll leave you with episode one of this new miniseries, Climate Revolution. You're going to really enjoy this. And I look forward to speaking to you again soon.
5: We have to move rapidly. What we do over the next three to four years, I believe is going to determine the future of humanity.
3: We've been trading off the planet against profit, living for today and leaving it to others to pay tomorrow.
5: We're in a very, very desperate situation.
0: Money alone will not save us. And right now, federal governments are failing to act.
5: Climate change is bigger than the New Deal, bigger than the Marshall Plan, bigger than World War II, bigger than racism, sexism, inequality, slavery, the Holocaust, the end of nature, the sixth extinction, famine, war and plague all put together because the chaos it's bringing is going to supercharge every other problem. To achieve a a safe uh, global climate, we must refreeze the Arctic to save it. To rephrase the Arctic, we must cool the Earth. To cool the Earth, we must reduce the heat trapping gases in the atmosphere and stop feedbacks. And I'm going to say something that will probably shock many people, but I think it's important for everyone to know this. While it is essential to halt the addition of heat uh, trapping gases to the atmosphere, such as carbon dioxide from our energy systems and from our exploitation of nature, as well as to stop the release of short-lived but more potent warming gases such as methane and refrigerants. That's absolutely essential. But current feedbacks will continue and raise global temperatures even if we halted all emissions today because current amounts of heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere are so high. So what must we do? In addition to halting putting things in, we must simultaneously reduce our emissions and increase the capability of natural systems to remove more carbon dioxide than we are releasing, so that the atmospheric amounts decrease. When we reach that point, we will begin to lower global temperatures.
0: We are right now at a time when we need to start to speak clearly, and we need to educate ourselves. And what we need the most right now is is of course climate action, but in order to achieve that, we need awareness, and we need for people to to understand these kinds of global mechanisms, and what is happening right now with with the planets, and maybe also what is not happening. Um, so that is my that is my call to action. That is my um, if I could have asked one thing of you, it would be to educate yourself.
1: The United Nations wants countries to declare a climate emergency to lift the sense of urgency in combating global warming. The UN is pressuring Australia to
6: make deeper cuts to its greenhouse If we don't change
7: course, we may be headed for a catastrophic temperature rise of more than three degrees this century. Can anybody still deny that we are facing a dramatic emergency? That is why today I call on all leaders
8: worldwide to declare a state of climate emergency in their countries until carbon neutrality is reached. Some 38 countries have already done so, recognizing the urgency and the
9: stakes. I urge all others to follow.
3: Years' time, countries, companies, and communities will try to launch the sustainable revolution to put the market into service of humanity and once again have society's values drive value.
8: This is what it sounds like. This is the sound of the climate revolution. What we do over the next two, three years, folks, is going to determine the future of humanity, according to Sir David King. And who is Sir David King? He's not just somebody out there. He's the former chief scientific advisor for the United Kingdom. So this is Geelong calling. This is Geelong calling all change leaders, all revolutionary thinkers out there, change leader candidates, emerging change makers, calling on you to join us and jump on this climate revolution bandwagon we need everyone warriors freedom fighters non-violent that is freedom fighters in the climate revolution bridge builders innovators networkers helpers researchers inventors communicators journalists it's time to step up and change the language change the story we don't need any more scientific advice all we gotta do now is create the shift so just cut it forget whether it's a wise term or not to say climate revolution this is a revolution and to kick off a series of interviews and talks and thoughts about that particular topic i'd like to introduce to you david wallace wells and the ted talk that he gave already back in 2019 about how we could change the planet's climate future. Because really, we don't have to reinvent any more wheels. All the plans are ready. All the thoughts that are needed have been thought. Now we just need to act. And with the words of the climate counselor, Professor Leslie Huge, who's also working with the IPCC, the United Nations International Climate Science Panel. She says, West Australians are right now paying the price with places affecting their health Homes and livelihoods. We need to find the way to the heart of this problem. We can't beat about that bush any longer. It has to be political. This solution needs to come from us, and it needs to become political.
1: This TED Talk features climate columnist and author David Wallace Wells, recorded live at We the Future 2019.
3: I'm here to talk about climate change, but I'm not really an environmentalist. In fact, I've never really thought of myself as a nature person. I have never gone camping, never gone hiking, never even owned a pet. I've lived my whole life in cities, actually just one city. And while I like to take trips to visit nature, I always thought it was something that was happening elsewhere, far away, with all of modern life a fortress against its forces. In other words, like just about everybody I knew, I lived my life complacent and deluded about the threat from global warming, which I took to be happening slowly, happening at a distance, and representing only a modest threat to the way that I lived. In each of these ways, I was very, very wrong. Now, most people, if they were telling you about climate change, will tell you a story about the future. If I was doing that, I would say, according to the UN, if we don't change course, by the end of the century, we're likely to get about four degrees Celsius of warming. That would mean, some scientists believe, twice as much war, half as much food, a global GDP possibly 20 percent smaller than it would be without climate change. That's an impact that's deeper than the Great Depression, And it would be permanent. But the impacts are actually happening a lot faster than 2100. By just 2050, it's estimated many of the biggest cities in South Asia and the Middle East will be almost literally unlivably hot in summer. These are cities that today are home to 10, 12, 15 million people. And in just three decades, you wouldn't be able to walk around outside of them without risking heat stroke or possibly death. The planet is now 1.1 degrees Celsius warmer than it was before industrialization. That may not sound like a lot, but it actually puts us entirely outside the window of temperatures that enclose all of human history. That means that everything we have ever known as a species, the evolution of the human animal, the development of agriculture, the development of rudimentary civilization, then modern civilization and industrial civilization, everything we know about ourselves as biological creatures, as social creatures, as political creatures, all of it is the result of climate conditions we have already left behind. It's like we've landed on an entirely different planet with an entirely different climate. And we now have to figure out what of the civilization that we've brought with us can endure these new conditions and what can't. And things will get worse from here. Now, for a very long time, we were told that climate change was a slow saga. It started with the Industrial Revolution, and it had fallen to us to clean up the mess left by our grandparents so our grandchildren wouldn't be dealing with the results. It was a story of centuries. In fact, half of all of the emissions that have ever been produced from the burning of fossil fuels in the entire history of humanity have been produced in just the last 30 years. That's since Al Gore published his first book on warming. It's since the UN established its IPCC climate change body. We've done more damage since then than in all the centuries, all the millennia before. Now, I'm 37 years old, which means my life contains this entire story. When I was born, the planet's climate seemed stable. Today, we are on the brink of catastrophe. The climate crisis is not the legacy of our ancestors. It is the work of a single generation. Ours. This may all sound like bad news, which it is, really bad news. But it also contains, I think, some good news, at least relatively speaking. These impacts are terrifyingly large, but they are also, I think, exhilarating. Because they are ultimately a reflection of how much power we have over the climate. If we get to those hellish scenarios, it will be because we have made them happen, because we have chosen to make them happen, which means we can choose to make other scenarios happen too. Now, that may seem too rosy to believe, and the political obstacles are, in fact, enormous. But it is a simple fact. The main driver of global warming is human action, how much carbon we put into the atmosphere. Our hands are on those levers. And we can write the story of the planet's climate future ourselves. Not just can, but are. Since inaction is a kind of action, we'll be writing that story ourselves, whether we like it or not. This is not just any story, all of us holding the future of the planet in our hands. It's the kind of story we used to recognize only in mythology and theology, a single generation that has brought the future of humanity into doubt, now tasked with securing a new future. So what would that look like? It could mean solar arrays barnacling the planet, really everywhere you looked. It could mean if we developed battery technology, we wouldn't even need to deploy them that broadly, because it's been estimated that just a sliver of the Sahara desert absorbs enough solar power to provide all the world's energy needs. But we'd probably need a new electric grid, one that doesn't lose two-thirds of its power to waste heat, as is today the case in the U.S. We couldn't use some more nuclear power, perhaps, although it would have to be an entirely different kind of nuclear power because today's technology simply isn't cost competitive with renewable energy, whose costs are falling so rapidly. We need a new kind of plane because I don't think it's particularly practical to ask the entire world to give up on air travel, especially as so much of the global South is, for the very first time, able to afford it. We need planes that won't produce carbon. We need a new kind of agriculture. Because we probably can't ask people to entirely give up on meat and go vegan, it would mean a new way of raising beef, or perhaps an old way, since we already know that traditional pasturing practices can turn cattle farms from what are called carbon sources, which produce CO2, into carbon sinks, which absorb them. If you prefer a techno solution, maybe we can grow some of that meat in a lab. Probably we could also feed some real cattle seaweed, because that cuts their methane emissions by as much as 95 or 99% probably we'd have to do all of these things because as with every aspect of this puzzle, the problem is simply too vast and complicated to solve in any single silver bullet way. And no matter how many solutions we deploy, we probably won't be able to decarbonize in time. That's the terrifying math that we face. We won't be able to beat climate change, only live with it and limit it. And that means we'd probably need some amount of what are called negative emissions, which take carbon out of the atmosphere as well. Billions of new trees, maybe trillions of new trees, and whole plantations of carbon capture machines. Perhaps an industry twice or four times the size of today's oil and gas business to undo the damage that was done by those businesses in past decades. We would need a new kind of infrastructure poured by a different kind of cement. Because today, if cement were a country, it would be the world's third biggest emitter. And China's pouring as much cement every three years as the U.S. poured in the entire 20th century. We would need to build seawalls and levees to protect those people living on the coast, many of whom are too poor to build them today, which is why it must mean an end to a narrowly nationalistic geopolitics that allows us to define the suffering of those living elsewhere in the world as insignificant when we even acknowledge it. This better future won't be easy. But the only obstacles are human ones. That may not be much of a comfort, if you know what I know about human brutality and indifference, but I promise you, it is better than the alternative. Science isn't stopping us from taking action, and neither is technology. We have the tools we need today to begin. Of course, we also have the tools we need to end global poverty, epidemic disease, and the abuse of women as well. Which is why, more than new tools, we need a new politics, a way of overcoming all those human obstacles, our culture, our economics, our status quo bias, our disinterest in taking seriously anything that really scares us, our short-sightedness, our sense of self-interest, and the selfishness of the world's rich and powerful who have the least incentive to change anything. Now, they will suffer too, but not as much as those with the least, who have done the least to produce warming and have benefited the least from the processes that have brought us to this crisis point, but will be burdened most in the decades ahead. A new politics would make the matter of managing that burden, where it falls and how heavily, the top priority of our time. No matter what we do, Climate change will transform modern life. Some amount of warming is already baked in and is inevitable, which means probably some amount of additional suffering is too. And even if we take dramatic action and avoid some of these truly terrifying worst-case scenarios, it would mean living on an entirely different planet with a new politics, a new economics, a new relationship to technology, and a new relationship to nature a whole new world, but a relatively livable one, relatively prosperous, and green. Why not choose that one? Thank you.
6: Many times
0: leaders think that a country has to be rich to be able to do this kind of transformation. Chile can show you don't need to be a rich country. When we defend, we take legitimate actions. Our leaders are getting arrested, and some of our leaders are even killed.
5: What is the meaning of our life if we work and live destroying the planet while sacrificing the future of our children?
0: We will hold those who are the most responsible for this crisis accountable. This is the biggest climate strike in history.
7: We were nominated for the Champions of the Earth Award because of our work measuring ozone from space. Every once in a while you kind of step back and think, you know, that was pretty important what we did. Wherever we live,
5: wherever we are, we all share the same responsibility. Make our planet great again.
9: Our responsibility is right now that we have reached the moment of truth, and we adults bear a heavy burden of responsibility. In 50 years, we have changed the conditions for life on earth as they have prevailed for 10,000 years. What happens in the next 50 years will determine the conditions for life for the human race over the next 10,000 years. We're standing on a knife's edge. The future will be decided now and i'm the first to admit with my hand on my heart i admit my guilt i have lived through this 50-year period in which we have accelerated towards catastrophic risks and i hope to live through a significant part of the coming decades in which we transform our world i and my generation are guilty and currently hold the positions of power in society, it is up to us to solve the problem. It's as simple as that. Yes, it is as simple as that, because we have the solutions, and we now have enough evidence that a sustainable future is the way to success, and we know that the window to a manageable future on Earth is still open, but only just. I'm often asked how I can handle being confronted daily by all the research about the threats to our planet. The threats are overwhelming at times, but are to a significant extent balanced out by all the positive signals. And I get positive news pretty much every day. Most recently from Jochen Seitz, former CEO of Puma, who has introduced sustainability principles throughout the company. He is on the board of directors of Harley-Davidson. He told me in confidence earlier last year, Harley goes electric. I almost fell off my chair. Harley Davidson, the very epitome of loud motorcycles, oil and combustion engines, is launching electric motorcycles. Is this possible? And why? Well, Jochen Seitz told me, simply because they realize that demand from the next generation will be fossil fuel free. It's about their survival. And if Harley can do it, so can the world.
8: to here was an excerpt from a brilliant series called Fixing the Climate Emergency Must Start Right Now. This was uh, Professor Johan Rockström, who closed the final part eight. You can find that series on ABC Radio National. Another great little podcast series, which is really worth listening to, is uh, one that came out with the help from Greenpeace. It's called Heaps, Better, and you'll find it in your podcast player. Simply if you search for heaps better, you can also find it on greenpeace.org.au/slash heaps better.
0: Hey, I'm
3: Jess. I'm Ash, and we're two mates on a mission to do something about this climate crisis.
7: Ninety percent of people in Australia want stronger action on climate. Get get going. Ninety that, percent—that's a lot. Like go.
1: So we knocked on Greenpeace's door. <laughs> 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 we found out what we should do,
0: but this is one way that you can directly change the system, and we did it together. That we can get the pens and pencils out. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes.
1: Oh my gosh! Is this, is this and now Ash and I feel heaps better. <laughs> so, world. so
2: please subscribe to Heaps Better wherever you get your podcasts, and come with us on a journey
1: from climate anxiety to climate action.
3: I'm flying.
1: Who's trying to save the planet is heaps better together. together. <laughs>
8: and they give you a lot of good examples on what we can do to make the world a better place where we speed up renewables and we stop our politicians funding the climate crisis and and a special section on how we make our leaders listen but i would say the point is we have to stop thinking that we can make our leaders listen we have to become leaders we have to start looking at ourselves and saying how can I lead where can I lead and what can I do what's my role in the climate revolution how can I contribute and if need be step up and run for government run for state government or run for the federal Australian Parliament we need young people we need more women who will run as independents or maybe sign up for a political party there are a number of them worth signing up for like The Greens, which is the biggest one, but there's also a new party, which is called the Climate Emergency Action Party. That's a title I certainly can subscribe to and would vote for when it comes to an election, which it will. People say that there will be a federal election in Australia, maybe in a half year's time, maybe in October we don't know but it's wise i think to start mobilizing we need to start now if we're getting a lot of independence to run on a sort of a climate revolution bandwagon or maybe the the put climate first bandwagon that we created here in geelong and we're successful with getting one counselor one new counselor in geelong council belinda maloney is there because of the put climate first alliance where seven women got together and supported each other and shared knowledge and ran their campaigns as an alliance. That's maybe something to think about. Is that what we need to do? Then let's do it. There is a first national convention for community-minded independence happening in Australia in the end of February. On the 26th, 27th, and 28th of February, you can attend the national convention called Getting Elected. The website for it is communityindependence.com.au. It's about building community knowledge and sharing practical advice to get more independent, community-minded candidates up to run in Australian politics. I personally believe that independence is the way forward. Along with the Greens and smaller parties, independents have a special role because in this time, which is so full of people, politicians who are spreading lies and misinformation, disinformation, it's important to have people with integrity who just represent themselves and who speak of their own personal values. If more people would move their votes away from these two big parties that seems to have ruled forever in this country and over to independent and small parties, that would help kickstart that revolution that we need to see. And there's also a state election coming not too far away. So let's get mobilized. Change is coming, but it doesn't come by itself. We need leaders. And if you look inwards, maybe that leader is you. But we also need to hear more stories about what we need to do and what we can do and where we're heading and so on. And if there's one person who I have very high respect for when it comes to talking about the future of Australia and economy, that's Michelle Maloney, who we've talked to a number of times in this podcast. Michelle Maloney did a whole podcast together with Post Growth Australia podcast. And uh, here's an excerpt, just a few minutes of what she said there.
1: Human cleverness, technology, it's all part of the solution, but there's no single silver bullet except we have to use less um, and develop regenerative, not extractivist ways of thinking and ways of operating our economy and our lives. Um, So I think it's a conversation today that has an awful lot of ammunition, but um, like many ideologies, rational thought and conversation doesn't always change people's minds. And and in fact, that comes back to why, to me, the New Economy Network is so important. It's not just about bringing people together and talking about the economy. It's about exciting opportunities and showing people a completely different way to think about the economy and different ways to operate, so we can still have a lovely life and jobs, um, and comfort and family, but we do it in such a way that is thoughtful, careful. Um, and we select the kinds of economic activities we do that can fit within the capacity of the living world, not just bludgeon our way. Um, and I often think of the colonial expansion of the Europe and European powers from the 1600s as a classic example of extractivism. They ran out of resources in Europe, so they went off to other places and used up theirs. Now many of them are kind of looking to other planets. Uh, it's like it's a very different culture to keep think you can just keep using up and move on to the next thing. Um, Versus, say, I work with a lot of Aboriginal colleagues and friends and professionals and, um, you know, their big learning as a culture from what people like Mary Graham and other philosophers say is, you know, they worked out that their giant continent was a finite place and they worked out how to live within those spaces rather than move on and take other things. So it's a very different mindset, I guess.
6: Indeed, and I know that so many people are also scared of change and what living in a post-growth world would be like. So part of this series is asking um, experts such as um, yourself um, to give a a snapshot of what a day-to-day life in a post-growth world might look like. Mm. I also always wonder, will I go out and go to the local market to buy food and go to work or... Um, will I be dining on Warrigal Greens and drew some artichokes in my garden instead? Like um what what does what does a day-to-day life look like that is ecocentric and post growthy and
1: Well, it's interesting because I think COVID has given us some insights into what it looks like to not travel as much, go out as much, use as much, um and I think it's given us some insights into how the little things become much more important. And on a day-to-day basis, a simpler life means less overindulgence in fossil fuel consumption, less overindulgence in shopping and consumption of material objects, etc. But it also means more time to be at home, to to be with family, to slow down, to water the garden. You know, it's a slower, more pleasant lifestyle. However, I think in the big picture, and a lot of work has been done on this, degrowth is much more than just um, a sort of simple slowing down. It is, but it's also about a significant change in the structures that we have in place, like to do it effectively. um, And Sam Alexander's written some excellent articles on this, to really think about a society and to support an entire social system that could slow down, be more earth-centered and use less, we actually have to work together. It's not just about what we do at home on our own. It's How do we have governments or collectives or communities who can say, we're going to share this stuff? We don't have to all own a lawnmower. You know, how do we change the transport system? How do we change the food system so that we're not walking into a grocery store that has just transported food that was grown nearby? You know, I heard folks in Townsville at a new economy symposium really concerned that there were food stocks being grown nearby that were transported all the way to Brisbane, then all the way back again to a Woolies or a Coles in Townsville. So to me, my ideal world would be waking up in the morning, knowing that anything I went to eat and anything I went to wear was actually made somewhere locally, made from sustainable regenerative stuff, whether it's hemp, um, knowing that I could do a whole range of things with less impact on the living world. And I think for me, the big marker is definitely, yes, human-centred, slower lifestyle, more family, more friends, but also more biodiversity. And this is where I'm always interested in how do we rethink the way we live in urban environments? You know, how do we stop the desperate isolation that many families feel in their little nuclear family in a house? You know, why can't we redesign our society so we have communal gardens, so that we go back to a different way of putting our houses together to me, what I would love, my my dream would be to wake up in every single bioregion and there's 89 of them in Australia is thriving with biodiversity. Human settlements and impacts are mostly within the productive capacity of that local place and that we're all able to have a fair, just and simpler lifestyle. So it's a complex conversation between the systems change we need and the day-to-day life that we could live. Um, and I personally... I'm personally still optimistic that we do have enough creativity and incredible people across the Earth Laws network across the Nina network. I'm inspired every day by the commitment people have to doing the right thing, doing the regenerative thing, you know, and making the world somewhere where everybody can live not just a select few.
8: During the last year since the coronavirus lockdowns started. We've been doing a series of interviews here in the Sustainable Hour, which we labeled Stairway to Hiatus. Not Stairway to Heaven, but to Hiatus. Hiatus being that place that we believe we need to go when we, at some point, realize how bad it is with that damage we're doing, not just to the atmosphere, but to all life on this planet, including ourselves that we need to stop driving and stop flying and minimize our fuel consumption and shift our gas heaters and spend more time out in nature and all of those things that we actually learned from the COVID-19 lockdown that we can do and which turns out to be really good for us and which it seems really obvious and inevitable that this is what we need to do more of in order to get the atmosphere back in its original balance, back to that safe level of CO2 that we used to have on this planet for the last 10,000 years. So, hiatus in the sense of pressing that big pause button in society, where we all get together about that understanding that we are now really close to that waterfall as we are sliding down the river sitting in our small canoes. And there's lots and lots of great podcasts out there and YouTube videos which describe how more and more of us are coming to that moment of realization that, oh, wow, shit. This doesn't look good. What's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to my children in the future after I'm gone? If we don't get this right, and apparently we are really in a hurry now, according to the science, what's going to be of us? A brilliant podcast that I listen to, which really expresses that feeling, is called Everything You Hold Dear. The podcast is part of a series called End Game, produced by Kyla Bredel and Rob Law. And in which we hear Melanie Scaife tell her story about that moment, that head-cracking moment as she calls it, when she realized that climate change is a real threat. It's not just some abstract future scientific story of some sort. And here's a couple of minutes, an excerpt from the podcast, where you hear Melanie and, and her four-year-old daughter and and how she puts words to that experience.
2: It's the enormity of it. Because everything, everything that you hold dear, everything that you love, is threatened by this. It's kind of all-encompassing. I mean, it completely undermines our reality. It, it just, it, doesn't it? That, that you know, we're p- potentially facing extinction. It's quite mind-blowing. Wow. I can hear the sea. I can look at my daughter and burst into tears if I think about the future if I just slap myself in the face and bring it back to right now. It's just full of joy. I guess it's learning how to kind of learn how to manage yourself, I guess, with this. I'm still on that journey and I, I fully admit that I'm, I've am i got a lot of work to do there, uh, you know, because I, I do, I can end up in that despair mindset and that's not helpful so yeah there's a lot to be grateful for and, and there's a lot to be done <laughs> Frankie I'm just running your bath so if you did want to watch one last show this is your moment just telling you fun
7: no. okay
2: well this is it because bath time's about to happen
4: Peppa and George are going to the seaside Grandpa
2: Pig. Existential kind of dread is there. It's not like I'm living and breathing at every moment. It, it, you can kind of shift around in your head. Let's tell me if it's too um, warm. I think it's pretty good. What do you think? Key Walk. Oh, no, I, of... I started searching for hope, for solace, wisdom, uh, and went on this journey of reading lots of different books, not necessarily specifically about climate change. A lot of people that talk about hope and what that means in terms of active hope where you actually don't maybe know what the outcome is going to be, but you're going to give it your best shot anyway. You know, you just, you don't give up. And there's that beautiful quote, pessimism of the intellect, but the optimism of the will. And that's what I am. I I am probably pessimistic intellectually, but I'm going to fight with all I've got um, regardless.
8: What's missing and what everyone is so desperately crying for is a plan. For years and years our leaders have failed to make a plan. We don't have a climate emergency response plan, not in Australia, not even in the United Nations. So so how are we going to solve this? We look to our leaders and they don't even want to admit that they don't have a proper plan. They don't want to admit that we are in an emergency. They try to hide that we are in an emergency. But that story, what I just said here, is actually no longer true. That story is changing by the day. Responsible politicians are ready and coming up with a plan. Like we saw the Climate Emergency Bill, which was introduced by three senators in the Congress in America the other day. That's an 18-page document, which shows you exactly what a full-scale climate mobilization looks like. And similarly, in the UK, a climate and ecological emergency bill has been introduced there. And there's now a petition running for that one. When we started the climate emergency declaration petition here in Australia four years ago, Philip Sutton wrote a long climate emergency act which showed how it could look if we started taking the climate emergency seriously here in Australia. So what's missing is actually not a plan. We've got the plan, but we can't see the forest for the trees. The reality is we actually have so many good plans all over the place and if we hold all those plans together what i realize is that this is it the plan is here it has a name this is what a climate revolution looks like and you truly realize that this revolution has kicked off if you take a look at for instance what happened in the british press just the other day take a look at the daily express on the 9th of february headline On a huge double spread the green industrial revolution is our future our heritage and that's right next to the leader of the paper which says let our crusade shine a light to a greener future this is the paper which a decade ago had a front page headline where it said 100 reasons why global warming is natural no proof that human activity is to blame this is the newspaper that has a columnist leo mckinstry who just like Andrew Bolt here in Australia used to write headlines like, global warming is nothing more than an expensive con. And this is the paper that gladly printed all that nonsense that he wrote. And now today look at McKinstry in the paper where he writes, without bold action, the climate crisis will deepen. It is our patriotic duty to go green and rebuild Britain. So, so I don't know what happened, right, honestly, but that is a transformation. That is that revolution we talk about, an Earth-centered, green revolution happening all over the planet. And I think if we try to get an overview, we'll see that there are at the moment four main barricades, which people have started to build and are climbing. That's the political one, which is also about elections and how we vote. That's the business-focused one, which is about how we run our businesses, our organizations. Then there's the agricultural one, which is about our food, and there's the personal one. What we need is, like Greta says, it's awareness because it's about that we need to get together and do the work. And to do that, a lot of us still don't know how. So we need training, education, inspiration. So again, what that means is that we need seminars, conferences, get-togethers, coaching sessions, enabling ourselves and humanity so that we can scale up a new regenerative earth-centered collaboration-focused way of solving the greenhouse gas emissions global warming climate crisis. So even if you don't see yourself right now as a climate leader, you could still become one by simply organizing something in your community or in your own business or together with some farmers where you live. It's about each of us finding our role. Mary-Annais Heckler wrote an article in wired last year we can't tackle climate change without you at this critical stage we have to accept we're all going to have to buckle down for the long haul responding to this crisis is going to have to become part of who we are all the time once you understand that you understand that this isn't about climate action this is about climate commitment it's a framework it's asking yourself what can i do next and always next So if you're good at taking care of people, take care of the legions of wary climate warriors. If you're a good cook, cook and make your food as sustainable as you can within your means. But more than anything, share it, build a community around it. If you're an artist, it's not your job to design a policy plan for rapid decarbonization and so on, or to decide which coal plants to shut down first and what exactly we'll be replacing them with. We have people on that. The role of the artist is to make revolution irresistible, wrote mary Annese Hekler. Erik Holthaus, who's an American climate scientist as well as a blogger and an activist, has written numerous stories about how to become a climate revolutionary. He actually published an article with the title How to Become a Climate Revolutionary in 2021, here in January. And he says again this thing about we each have a special skill, so offer it. Being a climate person, as he calls it, means that you do what you're good at and you do your best. If everyone did that, it would be good enough. So we each have a special skill, offer it, he says, and let others help you. You know, he says, don't be afraid to ask for help and subscribe to newsletters and join groups. But most importantly, maybe live in accordance with your values as best you can. Each one of us, he says, should try to live in a way where we actively create revolutionary change every single day. There's no difference between individual action and systemic action. And that's exactly where the Danish thought leader, Mass Timmer, comes into the picture when he says, systems won't change a thing. People will. Mass Timmer published a, a great article recently about that shift in thinking that we need to see, the shifting from our old extractive fossil era to the new era of regeneration and restoration. The realization that an economy that is regenerative actually brings a lot of exciting change to the table. When we begin to understand what regenerative leadership could look like, what a regenerative organization, a regenerative business would look like, he says that the regenerative leadership is something that is actually growing out of the shadow of the corona pandemic. The task for leaders of 2021 is to look beyond the online teams, meetings, and and the rapid corona transformations and instead look at the huge transformation that will characterize all of this decade, the transition from the extractive thinking to the regenerative, also in our daily management of our companies. He ends his article with these words, nature is the world champion in comeback strategies. It cannot be held back. The superpower of nature is diversity. And that is what you need to keep in mind when shifting your focus from efficiency to strength and resilience. Have multiple food sources, multiple funding paths, create teams of high variety and diversity, take breaks, cherish creativity, make room for microcultures and grow growth layers then you're ready for the future, no matter what it looks like. And if this could be an inspiration for you to step up and say, I want to become a change leader, one of those people who make this revolution happening, then there's a book that I think can inspire you. It's 150 pages, so relatively quickly read, and the title is From Me to We, The Five Transformational Commitments Required to Rescue the Planet, Your Organization, and Your Life. And just to give you one taste of it, we've recorded this excerpt from the book starting on page 87.
6: What do you stand for? When deciding on whether to abide by the principles of moral justice, it's important to ask yourself a critical question. What do I stand for? To answer this question, you must determine how you will treat other people. How do you want to live your life? How do you want to be remembered? As you lie on your deathbed, looking back on your time on earth, what will you think about? Will you consider how much more stuff you could have acquired and how dominant you were? Or will you remember the love you received and the caring you gave others? How do you want your gravestone inscribed? She took everything she could for herself and caused others great harm. Or, he travelled lightly and brought peace and happiness to others. The moral principles you adopt to guide your thinking and behaviour determine what you stand for and what your legacy will be. This truth applies to organizations as well. It is easy for private, public and non-profit organizations to lose their way unless they continually question why it matters that they exist. Generating sufficient profit and making a decent income are important. But if your organization does not stand for anything beyond making money, then it has very little inherent value to society. After all, many other organisations can sell the same product or do the same thing as yours. Making money is not a reason to exist. It is the outcome of achieving a higher purpose. Given the difficult period of rapid chaotic change we have entered every organization that wants to survive in the future will need to choose a purpose that helps people navigate the turbulent waters ahead and emerge solidly grounded in sustainable thinking and action. The moral principles your organization adopts will determine its ability to achieve that purpose. Financial well-being will be just one of the outcomes. Policy makers approach economic, social welfare, public health and environmental problems as if they are distinct from each other and require different remedies. The media, economic theory and our political discourse reinforce this belief of separation. This view is undeniably false. The truth is that from the climatic and biosphere that interact to keep the earth at just the right temperature to support life, to the male and female that mated and gave you life, we are all made from, composed of, sustained and affected by interdependent webs of social and ecological systems of all sizes, shapes and functions. Thinking otherwise, is a complete misrepresentation of reality. The reality is that everything on the planet is created and sustained by something else. There is nothing that actually exists by itself. This is the law of interdependence. It is the most fundamental of all of the natural laws of sustainability. It says that each of us exists in this world only as a part of a complex web of interlocking systems. There is no truly separate me. Each person is created and sustained by interconnected networks of ecological and social systems, a collective we. Most of us intuitively know this. We recognise that the air we breathe, the food we eat and the water we drink are produced by natural processes, and that our loved ones are important to our well-being. But too often we ignore this basic fact of life. Outdated assumptions and beliefs lead us to think and act as if we are independent entities that can exist without the interactions with and influences of other processes, organisms or people.
8: Here's how the author of this book, Bob Doubled, sums up his five transformational commitments in a lecture, which was recorded and then put up on YouTube.
7: When you work with groups uh, to help them think about what social resiliency means or what this shift from me to, me to we means, there's some laws you can help them understand and some commitments that you can begin to talk about it. You don't have to use these words, you can do it in any way you want. But the law of interdependency, we're all interdependent. Okay, And you can do that through some very simple, in the book I have, there's some simple exercises, one of which is just take a breath and figure out where that breath came from, and, uh, and it come, most of it, it in what, what you're doing. That is, you're inhaling oxygen. Where does that oxygen come from? It comes from the oceans and vegetation all around you. So you're only alive because of all those interactions happening all around you right now. Uh, And it sort of puts it into perspective. So help people begin to see, begin to try to imagine the ecological and social and economic systems they're part of. You can't see them all. But just beginning to think about that really helps. Then ask people to talk about the law of cause and effect, that you're having an effect on those systems that you're part of. And see if you can help them do some accounting for those. Moral justice uh, uh, and law of trusteeship are sort of your responses to those consequences. Do no harm first, and then try to do good. And then finally, uh, to, uh, uh, to make sure that you can choose your own destiny. I'll close with this. I like to always close with this. You are the leaders in this field. And you can only expect uh, difficult times and challenging times ahead. So if it's OK, I'll read this uh, just to close. Think about yourself now and, and the people you work with. Leaders are called to stand in that lonely place between the no longer and the not yet and intentionally make decisions that will bind, forge, move, and create history. We are not called to be popular. We are not called to be safe. We are not called to follow. We are the ones called to change attitudes, to risk displeasures, and we are the ones called to gamble our lives for a better world. And that's your challenge. Thank you.
8: You can read a shortened version of this book, From Me to We, with the book's main points in an article, which I'll put a link to in the podcast notes. And while we're talking about books, there is that other book that we talked about in The Sustainable Hour recently, which has the very appropriate title, Handbook for Change Leaders. We spoke with the Swedish author of that book the other week in The Sustainable Hour. I don't have that book yet, so I haven't read it, but it sounds promising from the title, Handbook for Change Leaders. I'll put a link to that interview in the notes on the podcast webpage as well. So this is it. As far as I'm concerned, the genie is out of the bottle. We can't just go around whispering about it and talking about it. We need to realize that we are in the middle of a climate revolution. So we better step up to be a climate revolutionary who is saying this is the defining battle of our lives. This is what we are passionate about. And if we look at our politicians and we don't trust them, We need new people coming into the game. As I said in the beginning of this hour, we need new candidates we can vote for. Science tells us time is running out and we just have a few years now to get it right.
5: We have to move rapidly. What we do over the next three to four years, I believe
3: is going to determine the future of humanity. As David Wallace-Wells told us, with a new politics, a new economics, a new relationship to technology, and a new relationship to nature.
8: A new type of thinking is essential if mankind is to survive. That was actually the words of Albert Einstein in 1946 in an article he wrote in New York Times. The world we have created is a product of our thinking and it cannot be changed without changing our thinking. The climate revolution begins in our heads. And it begins when a bigger and bigger, diverse group of ordinary people get the picture, understand the facts, know what we're fighting for and not just what we're fighting against, and change our own lives at all levels that are required. I'll round-off this hour, this call for you to join the climate revolution with a poem written by Amanda Gorman. It's called Earth Rise.
0: change is the single greatest challenge of our time of this you're certainly aware it's saddening but i cannot spare you from knowing an inconvenient fact because it's getting the fact straight that gets us to act and not to wait so i tell you this not to scare you but to prepare you to dare you to dream a different reality where despite disparities we all care to protect this world this riddled blue marvel this little true marvel to master the verve in the nerve to see how we conserve our planets you don't need to be a politician to make it your mission to conserve to protect to preserve that one and only home that is ours to use your unique power to give next generations the planet they deserve we are demonstrating, creating, advocating, we heed this inconvenient truth because we need to be anything but lenient with the future of our youth. And while this is a training and sustaining the future of our planet, there is no rehearsal. The time is now, 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 because the reversal of harm and protection of a future so universal should be anything but controversial. So, Earth, pale blue dots we will fail you not just as we chose to go to the moon we know it's never too soon to choose hope we choose to do more than cope with climate change we choose to end it we refuse to lose we do this and more not because it's very easy or nice but because it is necessary because with every dawn, we carry the weight of the fates of this celestial body orbiting a star. And as heavy as the weight sounded, it doesn't hold us down, but it keeps us grounded, steady, ready, because an environmental movement of this size is simply another form of an Earthrise. To see it, close your eyes, visualize that all of us in this room and outside of these walls or in these halls, all of us change makers, or in a spacecraft floating like a silver raft in space, and we see the face of a planet anew. We relish the view we witness. It's round green and brilliant blue, which inspires us to ask deeply, wholly, what can we do? Open your eyes. Know the future of this wise planet is right in sight, right in all of us. Trust this earth uprising. All of us bring light to exciting solutions never tried before, for it is our hope that implores us at our uncompromising core to keep rising up for an earth more than worth fighting for.